You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Welcome to another edition of Law Technology Now on Legal Talk Network. I'm Monica Bay, and our guest today is Nicole Shanahan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nicole is an attorney in Chicago and a research fellow at Codex and founder and CEO of Clear Access IP. Nicole, let's start by talking about Clear Access IP. Sure. Um, Thanks for having me. So I'm here in Palo Alto, and Clear Access IP is a startup that really emerged from my research Uh, at Stanford's Codex, Center for Legal Informatics. And we do a kind of end-to-end data infrastructure for corporations, uh, law firms, and universities to assist them in the back office management of their IP as well as their transactional activity. So we really connect what is the legal aspect of IP to the business aspect of IP. What made you interested in getting involved with that? Um, So, I mean, long story short, it all started when I was 12 and wanted to be an IP attorney, but it's evolved from about 10 years of working in the IP business for both law firms and corporates and realizing that there's a massively disjointed process between the creation of intellectual property assets, particularly patents, um, and their commercial use. So, you know, today, less than 4% of patents is ever read, are ever read for their commercial relevance. Um, And that means that we're really working suboptimally and the um, economics of innovation really tend to suffer because of this. So Clear Access IP is a great opportunity um, for us to kind of revision and rethink what the future of innovation infrastructure is going to look like. Nicole, there may be some folks who aren't familiar with a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Tell us for them what IP is and why is it important in a law firm? So um, intellectual property covers a few practice areas, uh, patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets being the primary formats. Um, So at a law firm, especially here in Silicon Valley, um, we're seeing um, a lot of need to reduce the cost around generating these intellectual property assets for clients. 
for instance, the average cost of filing a new patent, just filing it can range anywhere between, you know, $10,000 to, for a more complex filing, um, you know, $50,000. And what we're um, noticing among our client base, especially, is that it's becoming far more complicated to write a good patent. Um, we just recently had, in 2012, the American Vents Act rollout, and that just meant that we had a whole new set of statutory um, requirements around filing and around novelty. And, and that's put a lot of pressure on, on law firms to, to rethink um, how they deliver these services. Now, you've been working on this project for quite a while. How has it been for you to have the opportunity to be involved with Codex on working with this? And tell us a little bit about how you were working with that and where you want to be in maybe five years, maybe longer. I mean, where is it going? Well, Codex is so unique, and and you know this, Monica, um, having you know yourself been involved with the center. I mean, really, at its inception, um, Codex aimed to combine computer science um, with the practice of law. And for me, I looked at Codex as a place to really sanity check my desire to create this company. I remember when I first entered the the law firm um, as a paralegal over 11 years ago now, the idea of, you know, leaving the paper file behind was unthinkable. And now fast forward to where we are today. I mean, not only are we digitizing um, much of the law firm, but we're also looking at AI um, in terms of how to make legal practice more efficient, how to kind of transform client um, deliverables, and how to kind of address, you know, kind of a changing culture around legal services. So Codex was just um, an awesome place to go uh, when I decided to leave practice and, you know, think about the future of how to apply AI to intellectual property. And going backwards for a little bit, tell us about why you went to law school and where you went and what got you in a position to be interested in what you've just been talking about with Clear Access IP. So I was at a company um, working in-house called RPX Corporation, um, the Rational Patent Exchange. And um, at the time, I opened up the Nortel portfolio, which was a huge portfolio of over 4,000 assets. And all of those assets were sitting in a data room and needed to be reviewed. And even though I had the ability to sit there and review each and every one, it would have taken um, years to get through all 4,000 and and the company needed the report done in a few weeks. So, you know, it was at that time that I realized that, you know, even though I had gone to law school, I I went to Santa Clara Law School and I had worked um, on defining these skills for myself. It was you know, I realized that that law alone wasn't sufficient. So um, I had the opportunity to really think about, okay, I'm a lawyer, but I think I need to be something in addition to being a lawyer. And it was a great um, chance to to rethink um, what all this means today. Okay. To switch the subject a little bit, tell us a little bit about the San Francisco police project that you worked on. Yeah, so the project was called Smart Prosecution, and the 
goal was to use a big data approach to analyze a number of arrests. There was 3,600 arrests. And these arrests were particularly important to review because they were um, done by police officers that had been identified um, as participating in a ring of text messages that were incredibly racist in their nature. And so the opportunity uh, was to use computation to look at how incident reports were written to determine whether or not there was any way to flag biased or unfair policing activity. And so in that project, we had to take all the actual original incident reports and use data mining to first grab all of the data, relevant data, um, out of the incident reports um, into um, a structured database and then use um, certain forms of analytics to see if there were any identifiable trends. And tell us about how that all happened. I mean, I don't know very much about that. And who was involved with that? And how did you end up being involved with it? And tell us a little bit about what you found out and and were there any surprises when you did it? And when has that been? Is it over now or is it still going on? So it's really evolved. I think that the interesting thing with what's going on in the criminal justice world is that, you know, there's a bunch of tools. The Arnold Foundation, for example, developed a great tool for prosecutor offices. We came up with a tool in this project that we realized really fell short of what we were aiming to do um, because of the fact that we needed more data to work with. So I really looked at this one project as more of a almost an opportunity to see under the hood of how our criminal justice system works and identifying real pitfalls relating to how these new systems can be used in a way that, well, there's bias. I mean, there's an incredible amount of bias in the system itself. So training a system to achieve policy goals is is very challenging. Um, we worked with the San Francisco DA's office and just understanding, you know, how far they are today from having all of their data in a format that can be used at scale. And yeah, I, I mean, overall, and, and this is something that I, I feel very passionately about, is rethinking data infrastructure at the government level so that we can have better policy. How did that get set up? Did they look towards you or how did the project get going and what were the goals in the beginning and and where are you now with that? Is it still going on? The San Francisco District Attorney's Office created a blue ribbon panel and that blue ribbon panel consisted of retired judges. And those judges had to review all 3,600 incident reports. Um, There was only, I think, four of them uh, on the panel, and there was no way they would be able to actually go through each and every one of those incident reports. And even had they, they had no way to measure um, whether or not there was any irregularity and bias. So they got stuck and they were looking for a team that could come in and help them use a computational approach to structure that information to make it easier for those judges to come up with their own opinion. 
And so we worked with um, their chief of staff and their head of data to first grab the data out of the record, structure it, and format them in a way that the retired judges on the Blue Ribbon panel could find useful. And when did it start and is it still going? So I believe we kicked off that project um, at the end of 2014, and we continued it uh, for about a year. And we had created bar charts and we delivered a report to the Blue Ribbon panel, um, which they then used to write their opinion. Um, It was found that there was bias detected. And really that kicked off, I think, a much larger project um, that has involved since then more experts, professors, data scientists, and engineers. Very, very interesting. You've told me that you have a new project that is starting. Yes. So my partner and I have a foundation that we are, you know, looking to contribute to criminal justice reform. And I've been working with Professor Sherrod Gole at Stanford School of Engineering to come up with a computational public policy lab. And we just funded the lab for three years with a $4 million grant. And this lab is going to be leveraged for government policy projects. Um, And the vision is that we can use a data-driven approach to really help our government leaders think through big policy decisions. Are there any specific things? Is it just starting and or are there some specific things already starting? Yeah. So um, Professor Gole, who will be leading the lab, he's done quite a bit of work in reviewing police stop data. So he's released a great deal of literature um, around, uh, for instance, he's collected um, over 6 million stop and frisk records and analyzed those. Um, He's also done work relating to the North Point tool, which is a tool that reviews case records to determine whether or not um, a criminal defendant is likely to reoffend or not. It sounds like you have a real passion for what's going on in these areas. Where do you want to be in five years, in 10 years? Are there any other programs in addition to these two that you are interested in starting to get them going? I think in five years, I hope to see ClearAccessIP creating a new model around how corporations, universities, and law firms manage and disseminate and transact their IP. Um, I see a world in which the IP can be used more efficiently to bring about new innovation. And I'd love to be able to continue to be a part of that. And then in terms of you know, legal tech more broadly, I really think we're at, you know, the beginning of a renaissance. And I look forward to um, the Stanford Computational Policy Lab becoming, you know, a place where we can really start thinking about solving for kind of the biggest social ailments, such as, you know, access to education and healthcare, and, you know, dealing with our overpopulated prison system, for one. That's, to me, low-hanging fruit for the center. But yeah, just, you know, five years from now, I see these projects evolving and growing. Um, And I I also see a greater understanding and adoption of these approaches. To switch to a completely different question, 
you were in the White House. Tell us a little bit about your adventure there and why you got there, how you got there, and, and what was the biggest surprise there? So I took a visit to the White House um, about a year and a half ago to learn about their police data initiative, which was created under Obama's administration. And it was just wonderful to you know, see the different groups that grew out of uh, President Obama's administration, how passionate they were uh, about taking a federal approach to correcting for weaknesses in the criminal justice system. It was really lovely um, standing on the red carpet and, you know, looking out was, uh, it was just, it was wonderful. And, you know, I have a lot of hope that we can return to a, a federal governance model that really supports people. Nicola, I can't resist to ask you your experiences as mine have been over the last couple of weeks and about a month now of the amazing things that have come out on sexual harassment. I've never in my life seen anything go so fast and be so powerful. I'm curious as to what your experience is about what's been going on recently. Yeah, it's been fascinating. And, you know, being a female founder in the heart of Silicon Valley, I'm out there fundraising and talking to venture capitalists. And I, I can say that, you know, having personally experienced discrimination and, and formats of harassment um, in my career, I'm very pleased that women are feeling safe enough to talk about it in the public. You know, previously it would be viewed as career suicide to talk about these issues. Yep. And so I think it's a good thing. I don't think this is a bad thing. I just hope that the press has enough responsibility to really investigate before they, you know, rush to publish. You know, so long as we maintain a balance, I think that um, overall we all benefit from this. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I'm older than you are. And also, like like many, many, many people have gone through those. And for women to be able to come and, and able to speak about it. And you're absolutely right, because in the past, nobody would dare do it because it would just, they'd be out, period. I mean, it, it is just blowing my mind at how powerful that has become. And I'm so happy that that has happened. It's going to be a difficult time, but I think it's a very, very important one. Um, anything else you want to say on that? Um, no, I, I, I think you said it all. It's great that these institutions are listening, that they're not, you know, punishing uh, women for coming out with these issues. So I think it's, it's a good thing. Well, we're running out of time. Nicole, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before I ask you to tell our listeners how they can reach you? Um, no, that's all. Just if you'd like to get in touch with me, the easiest way is at info at clearaccessip.com. Um, that's I-N-F-O at clearaccessip.com. Well, it's always a joy to be with you, Nicole, and thank you so much for your wonderful conversation. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of Law Technology Now. I'm Monica Bay, signing off.
like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.